Welcome to Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics podcast. We have the whole team here today. Combined, we have 80 years of experience taking care of critically ill obstetric patients. I'll start by introducing myself. My name is Julie Arafay. I'm the Director of Simulation for Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics. I'm Stephanie Martin. I'm the Medical Director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics. And I'm Suzanne McMurtry-Baird. I'm the Nursing Director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics. On today's podcast, we'll be talking about clinical issues in caring for a critically ill pregnant woman. Ask yourself how this patient would be cared for in your institution. She's 35 weeks gestation with severe hypertension requiring IV antihypertensives. The decision is made to induce labor. The anesthesiologist decides to place an art line. Where will these patients be managed? Will she stay on labor and delivery? Who will manage the art line? Does she need to be transported to another hospital? Who decides? What if she goes to the intensive care unit? There are many more questions we could ask, but the real point is are we planning in advance or are we making these decisions on a case-by-case basis with the answers varying by time of day, what physicians are on call, staffing availability, whether beds are available in the ICU, whether or not the patient is going to deliver. Too often it's the latter. Let's explore these issues in more detail. Why are we not proactive in the care of critically ill pregnant women? A lot of factors play into this. Suzanne, what are some of the factors that you see play into this? Well, first, I I think fear. Fear uh, seems to be a prevalent factor in the nursing um, aspect, from my opinion. What do you think, Stephanie? Well, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think I think a lot of people are afraid that they don't know how to take care of these patients. They may have no experience. Maybe they feel like they know how to take care of them, but they don't have the support around them or resources. And I think a lot of physicians, especially non-obstetric providers, are really worried about liability. They're afraid of getting sued. You know, these patients are sick, they're at risk of having a bad outcome, either for mom or baby, and they don't want to be part of a lawsuit if something goes bad. Yeah, and I'll, I will speak from the um, ICU and OB nursing perspective. So first off, the OB team seem, may be fearful of the ICU. For one thing, we don't know what our role is up in the ICU. Typically, it's relegated to just doing fetal monitoring, so we don't have a clear picture of the ICU uh, plan of care. And we're unfamiliar with the environment in the ICU, and we don't know the providers or the other nurses that we're working with, and we don't really know who to call for a change in maternal or fetal status, or is it even our role to call for a change in maternal fetal status? Um, And then what happens if she delivers in the ICU? I think that's a big fear for the ICU nurses. Um, And all in all, there's just usually a lack of planning. Yeah, I think a lot lot of times the teams are also worried about what's going to happen next. Am I going to know what to do? Because, you know, are are they anticipating what the next possible outcomes could be and then being prepared to know how to deal with those situations? I'm not, I'm not sure that that always takes place. It's true, true. What about prior experiences with these patients? Well, I think it's a particular problem if they've had a prior bad experience. So, you know, if, let's say that there was a maternal death in the intensive care unit. The ICU team may be pretty, 
concerned or scared about having a patient back in another pregnant woman back in their ICU or vice versa. Maybe there is a, a bad outcome on labor and delivery and the ICU team thinks, you know, why wasn't this patient up in the ICU instead of labor and delivery? I think, I think that that absolutely can play into some of these decisions. Right. And, and from the ICUs, when I talk to the nurses, they talk to me and they say, well, sometimes the things that we do to these ICU patients, and if they're pregnant, they just don't respond the same as if they're not pregnant. So that's usually a big fear for them. Another big area where we see issues are knowledge, skills, and awareness. Now, these three concepts are most often thought about in this order, but let's flip them into what we think is the more correct order, which would be awareness, knowledge, and skills. I agree, Julie. We get so hyper-focused on the skills, and really in this environment, in this type of care, skills are the easiest part, at least from a nursing perspective. I feel that way. So let's start with awareness. I, I, I think that is a great place to start. First off, we have to be aware that the woman is critically ill. So for example, you have a hemorrhaging patient, she becomes tachycardic and then hypotensive. She then starts to become drowsy and her peripheral pulses are weak. You know, that patient is critically ill. Are we even aware that she's critically ill when we have that clinical scenario? Or take another example. She, you have a 32-week patient who's admitted with DKA on an insulin drip. Any patient with DKA is critically ill. She has metabolic acidosis. So just the recognition that the patient is critically ill must occur before you can progress down any other avenue. Then we determine where the best place to care for that patient is. Well, I think a lot of times the awareness isn't there because there's a, a, there is a lack of knowledge. But even once you recognize that the patient's critically ill, there may be a lack of, of knowledge about how to address the, the critical illness in these patients. And I think that's true in both the obstetric side of the coin and the ICU side. So, I mean, if we talk about just the lack of knowledge of critical illness from the obstetric side, I see a lot of what I call normalizing the abnormal. Um, some examples of that. Well. A patient may be tachycardiac, maybe her pulse is in the 120s, and we chalk it down to anxiety or, or pain without considering that perhaps this patient has some underlying pathology that needs to be evaluated. Or what about the oliguric patient? Maybe she's preeclamptic, you give her a 500cc bolus, and her oliguria doesn't improve. Does, it, does anybody know what to do next? What are we going to do next in that situation? Or let's take the patient who maybe is hypotensive. We've given her an IV fluid bolus. We've given her several doses of neosinephrine, and she's still hypotensive. Does the team know what to do after that? And how often do we see hypertension that we give? We've maxed out on our first-line antihypertensive medications. She's still hypertensive. She's refractory. So what now? I mean, that's a knowledge deficit when you don't know what to, to do next. So you know, to, the, to those that are listening, let's think a minute, like how well do you understand these things? And how well do the, does the team around you understand it? Do you know what the hour one sepsis bundle is? Do you know how to implement it? Because in the other, other areas of your hospital, they probably know what an hour one sepsis bundle is and how to implement it. Do you know how to recognize the severity of hemorrhage? Are you doing QBL? Is that happening in your institution? Or one of our pet peeves, because we see this deficit so often in the people that we work with and consult for, 
an, a lack of recognition of the multi-system disease process that is preeclampsia. Preeclampsia is not just hypertension. It's many, many other things. I think one of the other big issues that we see uh, is also this lost opportunity, this missed opportunity to recognize compromise until the woman is overtly unstable and decompensating. We wait until the last minute. So, for example, a patient that's hemorrhaged a liter, the nurses have reported she, she lost a liter of blood, but her H&H is 10 and 30, so we get falsely reassured by that. One hour later, her blood pressure is 90 over 50, and her heart rate is 126. And instead of acting then, when we've got early signs of, of compromise, we fail to intervene until the patient's even more hypotensive, 80s over 40s, and more significantly tachycardic with heart rates in the 160s. Oftentimes, I think the obstetrics team is very happy to take the patient to the intensive care unit because they think the intensive care unit is really up on everything that this patient might need. But what about the ICU team? Do they have any, defi any deficiencies? Well, I, you know, in working with ICU teams, the providers, the nurses, they often stress to me the, the fact that they aren't real up on the obstet obstetric disease processes. So like if a woman has preeclampsia and they're caring for her in the ICU, they don't really think about preeclampsia with that multi-system disease process. They think of it as a blood pressure only issue. And if her blood pressures are normal, well then, they think, well, she's not that sick, when actually she could have multi-system organ failure and still be in a, in a range of normal blood pressure, which may be related to volume status. So I've, I've heard that expressed quite frequently. Another disease process that they talk about a lot is DKA. So uh, this patient is a little bit different with her blood pressure or blood sugar measurements. So you're going to have to met, you know, manage a OB patient in more exact ranges than you would a non-pregnant adult. Um, so that that's a knowledge piece for them that they usually discuss. The other knowledge piece that they discuss with me a lot of times is what are the normal values of pregnancy? Uh, example, like a, a fibrinogen we know is elevated in a pregnant mom and they, that's not going to come back on the lab slip. So they don't have that piece of information uh, in the ICU uh, readily available. Um, what about her hematocrit, that a hematocrit in a pregnant mom is normally lower? Or what about a creatinine level is normally lower? So once it reaches 1.0, then that patient is really elevated her creatinine level, which may be normal for a non-pregnant adult. And then the other lab value that comes up a lot is ABG changes. So they're not really understanding that the physiologic changes of pregnancy causes the pregnant mom to be in a compensated respiratory alkalosis. Um, the other piece for the ICU teams that comes up a lot is the effects of treatment and management on the fetus. So often they may say, well, maybe we shouldn't do that radiologic test or give that patient the, the medications that we would normally give a patient because we don't know the effect on the fetus that it might have. So that comes up. And then the last thing that I can think of is the hemodynamics of pregnancy, how they change. And, and, and that includes the postpartum period too because hemodynamic changes in pregnancy are, are still in effect up to around six weeks postpartum. So thinking about the increased cardiac output needs of the pregnant mom or the uh, decreased systemic vascular resistance that she has. Yeah, I, I completely agree with all of those things. I think most intensivists just don't get any formal training 
in how to take care of a critically ill obstetric patient. And so they, you know, they're, they're really lacking a lot of that basic understanding. I think the other key thing for this group is that they're often, they'll fail to recognize just how well pregnant women can compensate and just how quickly they can deteriorate. All of the obstetric providers listening to this understand that concept. Pregnant women can seem to be doing fine and then all of a sudden they're going south very, very quickly. And that may be just because pregnant women are generally younger and healthier than than the normal patient population that's encountered by the intensive care teams in the ICU. Well, the last concept are skills. It seems each unit has expertise with different skill sets. How does that impact the care of the critically ill pregnant woman? Well, I'll start this one off since it usually is related to a lot of the nursing skills that, um, you know, both sets of practitioners are a little bit hesitant to um, uh, really feel comfortable with. And and it may be because you don't do it that often. But the first skill set I think of is non-invasive hemodynamic monitoring. And I know for the obstetric nurse, the obstetric nurse does a lot of non-invasive hemodynamic monitoring. But we're really hyper-focused in our care, let's say, of a laboring patient, and even in the antepartum period, of hyper-focus on assessment of the fetus. That I think that uh, oftentimes then the maternal head-to-toe assessments may be lacking. Uh, At least that's from the charts that I've reviewed and in some of the care issues that I've addressed with nurses. But um, for example, breath sounds, where where are they? Um, Are we listening to them frequently enough? And what would be even recommended in a critically ill OB patient? Um, I and O, the respiratory rate, you know, the respiratory rate, um, I joke and say I'm in search of respiratory rates because they don't automatically flow over to the EMR. So oftentimes I see that component of the assessment missing. Or what about peripheral pulse quality? Uh, OB nurses will tell me, well, there's no place on our flow sheet to put that. So I got to figure out where to put that. ICU nurses that would be saying, wow, I know exactly where to put that. And I assess that all the time. Same thing with capillary refill. But boy, do we have our uh, share of Braden skin assessments, suicide risk, and learning style all well documented uh, about every hour, wouldn't y'all say? <laughs> uh, you, you know, know. The, other, the other thing I'll add, Suzanne, is that, you know, in outside of, uh, of the obstetric units, if you have a critically ill patient, bedside non-invasive assessments like bedside echoes are commonly used. They're widely used, and we don't really take advantage of that. Uh, in the obstetric world, I think that's an opportunity that for us to do more of in taking care of these patients. Absolutely. I mean, the first thing that they're going to do the minute a patient is admitted to an ICU, an adult ICU, is to do a echo to see what her hemodynamics are. So, great point. As far as the ICU skills, um, I think about invasive hemodynamic monitoring, especially with arterial lines and central lines. I know. ICU nurses are going to be obviously very skilled in in those uh, components of the care, but an OB nurse, that may be very fearful for her or him because they don't do it that frequently, and and there's lots of uh, ways to to get around that and to determine how to do that in a program if you had an ICU, but that would be a skill set as an example, or how about chest tube management? I know that would send shockwaves across labor and delivery if you had a laboring woman with a chest tube in or 
the dreaded ventilator management. So I always say it's easier to, to have a patient on a ventilator who needs to be on a ventilator than a patient not on a ventilator who needs to be on a ventilator. So unfortunately, because we are, um, we lack those skills, oftentimes we don't intubate early enough into our care. Um, another skill that I think about is dosing and administration of medications. Uh, so examples, um, are we really skilled on dosing and administering vasoactive medications like vasodilators or vasoconstrictors? Um, or how about insulin drips? That's another one. There's a lot to consider with these patients. I know another huge clinical issue we're often asked about is where do you care for these patients? Unfortunately, in some places, there doesn't seem to be a process in place to make this decision. Can you imagine if there were no process in place to decide where a baby who needs a sepsis workup would be admitted? Yeah, I mean, in, the, in my experience, it seems that the, whether or not the patient's pregnant or whether or not she's gonna be delivered is gonna dictate where she's gonna be cared for, not the severity of her clinical illness. And it seems like that's backwards. Her clinical illness should dictate where she's taken care of, and then we accommodate the fact that she's pregnant or planning to deliver instead of the other way around. So I, want, I, I thought it'd be a good idea to go through some examples of these situations to, to think about, well, where should this patient be cared for? So let's take a 28-week patient antepartum. She's undelivered, she's got DKA, and she's contracting. So it's gonna change by institution where this patient's gonna be taken care of, but I want the listener to think for a second, where would this critically ill patient be in your institution? So first, let's acknowledge this patient's critically ill. This patient is critically ill. She's 28 weeks with DKA and she's contracting. Where would she be in your institution if she was not pregnant? Where would she be if she was 28 weeks but wasn't contracting and had DKA? Does that change where she's taken care of? Now what if about if we have a postpartum patient Let's say she had a vaginal delivery for preeclampsia with severe features, and an hour after delivery, she's diagnosed with non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Now, this patient is critically ill. Is she going to stay in labor and delivery? Is she going to be on postpartum? Or is she going to go to the ICU? Where is she going to be? Where would she be if she was pregnant? What would happen? So now if we've got a patient that we need to deliver, are we delivering her in the ICU? Or are we going to move the patient to labor and delivery if she's in the ICU? Are we going to take her to an OR? Are we going to do the operating room or the, the surgery in the ICU? Have we thought about these things in advance instead of when the issue presents itself? Have we even asked the question of whether or not the patient can labor? Have we talked about what our plan of delivery is going to be? I think it's we oftentimes just deal with these things in the moment instead of thinking about them in advance. I see it over and over and over. So you've decided your patient is critically ill. In our experience, another clinical issue is who's gonna take care of her? Well, I mean, that, I think that's one of the biggest things that we get asked about over and over and over is who should be actually be taking care of this patient. Even if we've determined the location of care, so we've decided they're going to the ICU, the question still comes up, who's gonna be taking care of the patient? So unfortunately, the location often dictates the care team. The second thing that dictates who's going to take care of them is whether or not she's still pregnant. In, so, in fact, I've seen it be such an issue that we sometimes drive the plan towards delivery because we may decide that the patient needs to be in the intensive care unit, but we aren't comfortable with a pregnant woman in the ICU, so we decide to deliver her instead of accommodating the fact that she's pregnant and creating an environment and a team that are comfortable with that situation. 
So I thought it'd be good to go through another patient scenario and talk about the care team issues that we've seen in our own careers and in our consulting business. So let's say we have a 35-week patient who's being induced with aortic stenosis, and she's requiring continuous ECG monitoring in the central line. So Suzanne, what are, what are some of the nursing issues that you see? Well, that would, that would definitely bring up some. Um, so do we have labor and delivery nurses go up to the ICU? Um, or do you have an ICU nurse come down to labor and delivery? Um, does the clinician um, hat outweigh the administrative hat? And I, I say that because I've been both. So in other words, are we going to have double staffing with two RNs uh, to one patient staffing, which is a very expensive uh, nurse to patient ratio that, in other words, this patient could be managed by one nurse if that nurse had the skills needed to for the patient care that was required. So I think that that's a huge nursing issue. The other nursing issue is the delivery plan. Um, where will she deliver? How will she deliver? And when will she deliver? Because that affects so many members of the care team. Many times those decisions are made by the physicians. What are the issues you've seen for physicians, Stephanie? Well, first of all, I want to say that I think it's important that we all acknowledge that maternal fetal medicine specialists need to be involved in the care of all critically ill pregnant and postpartum women. And this, you know, for some could be a massive practice change. They, they may not be involving MFM or may not have MFMs available um, in their current state. And I think we need to acknowledge that not all MFMs are comfortable caring for these critically ill women. Either they have a lack of training or a lack of experience, and maybe their training was more ultrasound or outpatient focused and less maternal focused. Um, some facilities that are currently caring for critically ill pe- pregnant women may not actually have MFMs on staff, but the new ACOG SMFM maternal levels of care document states very clearly that MFM needs to participate um, in the care of these patients or they need to be cared for elsewhere so that MFM can be involved whenever possible. Now, on the other side of the coin, we've got ICU physicians that may have little training or experience with pregnant, uh, pregnant critically ill women, you know. ICUs can be open or closed, so a closed ICU um, has intensivists as uh, the physician of record, the attending, the admitting, and they're the ones that are directing the care and writing all the orders. In an open ICU, any consultant can write orders and be involved in the, in the care, and so it can create controversy in, like, who's actually calling the shots. And now I like to joke about consultamegaly. Who, how are we going to handle consultamegaly where we've got like, you know, one consultant per organ system? I think I know you guys have seen that before. <laughs> yeah. So, but when you've got so many consultants on these critically ill patients, how are we going to handle when they write conflicting orders? Or what happens when the orders conflict with a plan of care that's documented in the chart? Or when you get multiple specialists, you've got conflicting documented plans of care among the specialists themselves. That's a really, really good point, Stephanie, from a nursing perspective. Like, who is the nurse going to call for a change in maternal or fetal status? Um, You know, who is the managing physician? Who am I supposed to be calling? And then we have another care provider that we're always collaborating with, the anesthesiologist. Where do they fit into the care team? Can't forget about our anesthesiologist. Can't live without those guys, right? I mean, but what I've, what I've seen oftentimes is that when you have a critically ill patient managed on labor and delivery, 
the anesthesiologist really is expected to fill in all the gaps. And it may not be planned, but it's often what is happening. And it really emphasizes how important it is to determine the care teams well in advance so that everyone involved knows their role. Now, for the anesthesiologist, it's going to depend on a whole lot of things, but it especially will including, you know, what's their level of OB anesthesiology experience or training? It's a great point, too, from a nursing perspective. Like, are we really expecting anesthesiologists to manage arterial lines in between OR cases and epidural placements instead of developing an OBICU program or training our OB nurses to manage the arterial lines? I mean, after all, if a woman needs an arterial line, she's critically ill. So when thinking about care teams, um, another issue is every team member or specialist rounding at different times. There's no coordination, and often that leads nurses without a clear understanding of the management plan. And, and another point to that is it also affects the woman and her family in getting their questions answered or understanding the plan of care. And then lastly, I think there's another care team uh, group that we need to address, and that's the NICU team. Does the NICU team know the plan of care, especially if care is remote from labor and delivery? Has the NICU uh, planned on how they'll manage the newborn if birth is off service, especially if gestation is preterm or if delivery is unexpected. Do they even have a place to hook up their equipment? So, and they, they have a lot of equipment too. Yeah, I mean, I think we all agree that all of these issues are ultimately, you know, they, they stem from lack of preparedness. So Julie, I want to ask you, if you were to use simulation to address just one of these issues that we just outlined, how would you go about it? Well, I think what would be most important to think about is for that particular institution, where does the staff think is the best place for this woman to, to be cared for? And where would they think the ultimate are the best place for her to deliver? So if you start there, you can go to that particular unit and see, are there any gaps? Um, for the most part, depending on the patient's um, condition, depending on the diagnosis and the fact that she's pregnant and could p potentially deliver, you may have a list of things that could potentially happen, uh, complications. So if this woman were to deliver an hemorrhage, how would that be handled? So simulation can help work through some of these questions to see what needs to be brought to that unit or what needs to be thought about or considered once you have a plan in place to take care of this patient. That was great. So let's revisit the four categories that we've talked about, these four categories of clinical issues that all of us have encountered in our experience and through our consulting in caring for critically ill women. The first one is fear. That's followed pretty closely by awareness, knowledge, and skills. And then we have the environment and lastly, our care team. All of these issues can be addressed with evaluation, simulation, planning, and training. If you want to know more about how clinical concepts in obstetrics can help your program, check out our website at www.clinicalconceptsnob.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>